0: Welcome to Stress-Free IEP. You do not need to do it all alone with your host, Francis Schefter, Principal of Schefter Law. You can get more details and catch prior episodes at www.shefterlaw.com. The Stress-Free IEP video podcast is also posted on YouTube and LinkedIn, and you can listen to episodes through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Now, here's the host of Stress-Free IEP, Frances Schefter.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm hoping we're not going to have issues because it looks like at the intro, there are a couple of Glitches, but hopefully we're going to be good for today. Today's special guest is Naomi Rubenstein, who is a family educator and social learning specialist, and she's in the Baltimore, Maryland area. So, Naomi, please introduce yourself a little bit. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: Good morning. So, um, I am. I have my master's in education,
1: and um, I work with children
2: and families, and. Um, I've been doing it for many years, but through kind of different venues. So I started out um, my graduate work in New York and came down back to Maryland and have been working in, you know, in a lot of different settings, private schools, public schools, um, and just really happy to be here today. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. And so, social learning specialist. What is that specifically? Like, what does that title mean?
2: So that's a great question. It basically means that I support um, mainly um, children who have um, challenges in the pragmatic language area with um, social communication. So this can be, um, this can be, you know basically young children who are having difficulty in their preschool setting, um, who are, you know, maybe having difficulty picking up cues, following routines. Um, and then older children sometimes need support navigating kind of the nuances of social interactions as they get older. But my job is really to support them with kind of everything um, involving social communication. So that's both
1: nonverbal and verbal. And that's a pragmatic language. I know a lot of people um, associate pragmatics with, um, children on the spectrum, but do to people, do kids have to have a diagnosis in order for you to assist them? No, not at
2: all. So I, you know, I would say that most of the, the, the children I work with, um, are either neurodiverse or they're, um, they're kind of in the process of getting, um, a diagnosis, but there are many kids out there who, especially, you know, post pandemic, who haven't had a lot of the experiences that we all traditionally have had. And so kind of their, their ability to have, you know, to kind of experience all of the interactions that we would like them to have, you know, hasn't been as robust as we would like. And so we're seeing, you know, some some kids who maybe wouldn't necessarily fall into the category of neurodiverse um, needing some support with that social communication. Um, And I I think, you know, sometimes it's also not necessarily um, autism. It might be ADHD. Sometimes anxiety gets in the way, right? Like if we think about, if we're in a situation where we're feeling anxious, we're not really as available to picking up on these social cues and also to using some of the skills that we already have. So, you know, what I find is, you know, sometimes I'll go in one setting with a child and they'll be really available to using all of these pragmatic language skills, but in another setting They might look, they might present just completely differently and, you know, they just aren't available and they're not, you know, they might be stuck on one thing in the environment that might be making them anxious and it's interfering enough that they're not picking up on, you know, what's happening around them and, and really processing what's happening. It also depends on, you know, the number of, of children and environment around them The stimuli, you know, certain stimuli affects um, every child differently. You know, some kids, you know, visual stimuli might interfere. Other kids, you know, auditory stimuli might interfere. Even just like internally, that interoception piece, how they're feeling on the inside, right? Like, are they able, they might not feel in that moment that they're hungry, um, but they, they're really lacking kind of the internal resources because they haven't eaten in several hours, that something like that might be interfering with their ability to communicate with with other people.
1: Right. You know, it's so interesting because you say like the anxiety and I had brought up the you know spectrum ASD kids and, and the ADHD and those three oftentimes are together. You know, I wind up with kids that yeah. have all three and it's, to me, I'm like, is it, or is it just, you know, like I have such an issue with labels sometimes because it's just, you know, like not, not necessarily, like, as you said, you don't need a label. If you're struggling, let's mm-hmm. find why you're struggling and help with that issue. Um, so I know um, you were saying like you work with the whole family and mm-hmm. in different settings. Like, how does that work? What does that look like? So it
2: really, it's a, that's a great question. It really, truthfully, it depends on every family. So I have some families who I work with. Well, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. And the reason why I say, the reason why I say that I work with the whole family is because family dynamics are so important and, and we have to understand the big picture to actually really, you know, understand what's happening with the child and you know parents are stressed children you know children are stressed and this isn't about you know the pandemic this is you know kind of historically I think you see this kind of um this dynamic where like one person in the house is having a challenge and then it really is kind of going through the entire household is going through like there might be a sibling involved. Maybe a sibling's having a hard time. Maybe even a grandparent is going through something, and then the parent is stressed. And then it just—kids are very in tune with our kind of emotions. And sometimes, look, we're human, right? Like we we can't. Especially with young children, it's like sometimes they might know something is a little off, but especially the kids who are kind of struggling with that emotional regulation to begin with, and they have those challenges, uh, you know, underlying challenges, you know, they might kind of pick up thing, you know, pick up on things that are kind of off with a parent, but also they might not understand why and really be able to kind of connect all the dots. And then it becomes even more challenging for that child. Um, because they're kind of feeling a little bit dysregulated because the parent's a little bit dysregulated. Um, sometimes it's even having nothing to do with the child, right? Like the, the parent might be going something with, you know, through something at work and then and then they're you know, a little stressed at home and then that's impacting the child. There are all sorts of things. And I think, you know as practitioners, it's really important that we understand the big picture of what's happening at home. And also what's happening, you know, just generally in all environments, I would say, Um, kind of picking up on the details, but making sure that we understand the big picture too.
1: Right. The first thing that came to my mind when we were talking about that is when I was a teacher and, you know, sometimes the teacher would be talking like, why is this kid like that? And then the parent would walk in and we're like, oh, that's why. And it's just not that it's bad or anything, but like, that's, the role models they have. And if this is the way your parent is acting, then that's the only way you know how to act. Um, and the other thing is just that the, the kids know what's going on. Um, and, and I'd like to say like any intellectual level, like when I used to teach, I taught um, kids that didn't interact, that they were, you know, below 40 in the IQ. And, um, but you, like I had one that one time we were at the emergency room again, because she had a seizure And the doctors were amazed because when I walked into the room, how the child, they saw a difference in the child. And so it's, does she cognitively know what's going on around her? No, but she instinctively, her body felt energy and felt the calming of
2: me in the room. Yeah. I think, I think the, you know, and that's that's just a huge piece of what, of my work with families is, you know, making sure that, you know, Everyone, one understands, you know, the child's strengths and challenges and also their own. You know, a lot of the work that I do with parents is parent through parent coaching. You know, it might be this way, you know, virtually just talking through, you know, challenges at home and and, you know, talking about strategies and and then coming, you know, trying out a strategy and then coming back together and um, kind of going through the motions of well, oh, this worked, you know, in the morning, but it didn't work in the afternoon. This worked on this day, it didn't work on that day. And how can we kind of tweak it a little bit and then um, try it again? Um, You know, making sure that the parents are using all of the strategies, um, you know, that You know, we're working on, for example, if I'm working, you know, directly with the child, making sure the parents are involved and and coaching them honestly in real time is really helpful. Um, Looking at the whole family, sometimes the sibling is in the sessions with us. Um, Sometimes, you know, I'm supporting, you know, the the dynamic, the the challenges between the siblings in real time. I think that that can be really, really effective. and, you know, talking through with parents, um, you know, ways to, to support all of the people in the household, not just necessarily that one child that they're looking for the, you know, support with. Um, yeah. So that whole family piece is really important and helping parents really understand why they need to put on their oxygen masks first, um, helping them, kind of guiding them to, and, and educating them. Um, and, and helping them understand that, you know, they need to become, they need to be in a good place before using the strategies. Um, but it's,
0: it's, it's,
2: um it's something that
0: you know we need
2: to make sure that kind of everybody's on the same page and that's a lot of the
1: collaborative work that I do with families and outside uh, practitioners um it's just you know because it does matter with the whole um family and in um especially with the siblings. Cause I know the dynamics are so different with siblings. Yeah. And so you were saying that you do, um, different sessions and when you're working with a child or working with the family, like, what does that look like? Do you work directly with the child? Do you work with the whole family? Is it a mix match? How does it work?
2: That's a great question. So as I said earlier, it really depends on the child and the family, you know, ideally, I prefer to have the parents involved in the session with us or, you know, because you know, and it kind of, it, it kind of is similar with, with teachers too. If, if the parent is there during the session with us, I can model these strategies for them in real time and then they can practice them with me and then I can coach them through it. If we're on a call, uh, you know, a, meet, a virtual meeting like this, and I'm relaying the information to them, it's not nearly as, as, as productive or empowering to parents. Uh, I think when they can see, you know, in real time what I'm doing, and I can also give them scripts, which I can do, you know, this way too, um, but it's it's really important,
1: really, really important you know it's interesting you say that because like i know as a parent myself like yes i could read a book and i could sit and watch a video and stuff but i mentally know what i need to be doing but when you're in the heat of the moment and something's going on it's hard to remember what's going on um that um you know like it's just like you said like the child doesn't think what's going on if there's too much stimuli going on um and like I, so I see that it, it's showing them how to do, and I know we're having, um, I know, I'm sorry. I, apparently there's feedback that I don't hear, so I don't know if it's on my end or not. I, <laughs> I heard it too. Um, okay.
2: it seems to actually be really improving. I'm not sure why. Okay. Um, Cause I turned off my
1: air and I thought that might be it. Oh yeah. Um, so
2: yeah. my ears aren't enough. Gonna... I don't know. Um, We'll just keep on going.
1: So that's, sorry, that's because
2: I, I could maybe I'll try turning off my headphones and just going, just, but I don't hear it. So it might be on my end. Yeah, I hear it too. So maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to, oh, I see what you're saying. You don't hear it. Let me, let me try. Okay. Let me just turn them off. Um, No, I still hear it.
0: No, I still hear it.
2: Unfortunately. Oh, no, it's gone. It's Okay. But now I can't hear you.
0: Let's
2: see. Okay. Okay. No. Nope. Yes, I think we're, is that better? I, I don't hear it anymore,
3: Sarah. Okay, good. Okay. Okay, there we go. Um, no big deal. Um, sorry. It's the reality of life, right? Technology today. Um, so we were talking about like what. Sorry, I lost like, you again. Are you there? Can you hear me? How do we do? Okay. I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Ah, oh no.
2: Okay, Can now
3: I hear, oh, okay, I hear you.
2: Oh, okay, there we go. Now I hear <laughs> you. <laughs> okay.
3: Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thank you.
2: Um,
3: it's so funny because it's just like like you were saying with the pandemic and stuff, and you would think we would do all this, but it's life. And it's just like thinking this through, it, it reminds me of what kids go through in the communication.
2: Yeah.
3: Because it's something different going on and like, oh, no, wait a minute. I'm not used to this coming at me. How do I fix it? What do I do? Um, so how do you help kids with, with that, with like putting it into different scenarios and using the skills?
2: That's a really great question. So for a lot of the kids I work with, I really need that direct, that explicit instruction one-on-one first. Um, and when they're ready, when they're available, um, I support them to generalize it in all settings. So what that would look like would be this. So let's say I have a child, um, who's struggling with the, the um, maybe self regulation or particularly cognitive flexibility, which comes up with I would say almost all of my almost all of my clients, um, you know, practicing being flexible one on one with me, and then you know meeting with the other practitioners on the team, particularly teachers and um, the administration at whatever school they're in. And kind of making sure that we're all on the same page in terms of the language we're using, the prompts, the cueing, et cetera, and then going into the classroom or maybe going onto the playground with them or going to a play date with the child and really pushing into the setting so that I can support the child in real time. Because what I find is that a child can work with a practitioner once or twice a week, right? Mm -hmm. And they can practice these skills and you see the improvement in this vacuum. Right. But when they get into these other settings like school, a birthday party, right? Like that's like the most challenging place. Family, you know, family vacations, wherever they are, they are, have struggle to really um, utilize all these skills because of the things we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, right? Like anxiety, um, overstimulation, um, or sometimes like even almost being under, you know, under responsive to stimuli. Um, so it's important that we make sure that we help them generalize. And so this, it's kind of like you want to kind of come at it from a lot of different angles. One, it's me making sure that I'm regularly communicating with parents and the school and outside practitioners. And when the child is available to it, Kind of slowly pushing into different scenarios. For example, one-on-one play date would probably be the next step because it's just that child and one other and a peer. Then you kind of can go into the school, or you might. I have you know kids I work with who really struggle on the playground because it's so you know unstructured, and it, and and they're just that kind of. A lot of the time, for some kids, one they have trouble. They might have trouble with like initiating. They may have trouble with organizing and planning um, and then executing um, or even responding to peers on the playground or in school. Um, and we want to make sure that we're there to model for the kids, too. And really, I do a lot of thinking aloud um, because it's so, and, you know, this goes back to my, you know, graduate work and education as a teacher. And I know I'm sure you can relate to this, Francis. is that, you know, you're thinking aloud and modeling during those kind of mini lessons, right? Well, I do that in real time. I mean, I do it in one-on-one, you know, explicit instruction, but I might like, let's say I have a child and we're in the, um in the classroom and um the child kind of instinctively grabs a toy from a peer instead of asking. And, you know, I, we see that the, the peer gets upset. And so, I might model and think aloud for the child, "Oh, you know, I see that Johnny has a frown on his face. I think that means that he's not happy that that you took the toy out of his hand. I can see you want that toy. Um that's okay. When I want a toy, I ask my friend, "Johnny, may I please have a turn?" Um and What I usually do, depending on the child, is I'll wait. I give a lot of wait time. A lot of my friends (laughs) need a lot of wait time. And I give them an opportunity to kind of use that, um, the script that I've given them. And sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes they need a prompt. You can say, may I have a turn? Then you wait, right? right? Do they ask? You wait. And then if they don't, I just model it. Johnny, may I have a turn? And then there's kind of that reflection piece after. Johnny gives the toy. Oh, I asked Johnny. So he had a picture in my head that he wanted a toy and then he could give it to me. And look, that's a lot of language right there. So, you know, please know that, you know, that's not necessarily the strategy I would use for every child because some of my kids, you know, I would lose because it was just too much language. But that's just an example of how, You know, I'm working with kids in the classroom because a lot of kids, they really do need that. And look, the reality is that teachers work very, very hard, Mm -hmm. but many of them have many kids in their classrooms. You know, my client is typically not the only child. Look, Neurotypical kids have challenges, too. Everybody has a challenge, right? Right. Teachers are navigating, uh, you know, various strengths and challenges and differentiating instruction in the classroom. And they might not always be able to meet the needs of every child in that moment, right? They might be over on the other side of the room with, with Isabel, you know, because she's upset because a friend took her toy or whatever it is. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of my work with teachers also has to be really thoughtful because I have to really problem solve with them to create strategies that are going to be practical for them. It's easy for me to come into a classroom and say, Oh, I think, um, I think Josie needs this, this, and this. And this is what, you know what? Like that's probably not, that's just not realistic. You know, teachers need to, to, you know, you to kind of take a step back and really think carefully about the strategies that you're giving them because they're, they need to be practical for them. And I also think, you know, part of my job is helping parents understand the realities, you know, of whatever, you know, educational setting their child is in is the setting really going to be able to provide what your child needs or do they need a more specialized um, setting? Um, You know, for some of my kids, they thrive in a regular education setting with, you know, a certain amount of support and that the school is able to give that. Or, you know, if they're not, you know, there are enough specialists kind of coming in and, and everyone's just kind of on board and open to strategies and for others, you know, unfortunately, that setting's not appropriate, and we need to, to really think about, you know, a more specialized setting or or a setting that has maybe, you know, a better teacher-student ratio, so that the child, you know, just is more available because the setting, you know, doesn't have as much stimuli that's overwhelming them. Um, but but generalizing generalizing the skills, I would say, is the hardest part. Um, And I think, you know, also making sure, you know, that we are careful about not giving too much support and not giving too little support. And when we're giving, you know, a certain amount of support, when we release it, we release it very carefully and very slowly. Um, You know, the idea is that we want a child to be as independent as possible in whatever setting they're in. Um, And so, you know, I'm always looking for, you know, ways that we can slowly release support, but we want to do it in the right way. We want to make sure that the child feels safe and doesn't kind of go from zero to 60. But, but you know, yes, it, you know, it, it really does look different for every child in terms of that generalization. I because, some sister, you know, some schools are really open to it. Um, I would say most schools are really open to it. I mean, certainly we're limited. You know, I live in North Potomac, Maryland, so I'm in Montgomery County. Um, and, you know, so, you know, if I, I want to go observe a child in Montgomery County public schools, you know, that can happen and I do that, but it, it's not, I don't have the same ability to work with a child, you know, in, during the school day in, in Montgomery County, as I would say, you know, in a private school. Right. Yeah. And
3: setting makes all the difference. I have that conversation a lot with my clients because, you know, sometimes we know the general education setting is not a hundred percent right, but we also know the special ed set, the full special ed setting isn't right. And so where do we go from there? And it's challenging. Um, but it's, I love that you do the modeling because, you know, thinking back to like teacher days or just, you know, with my own children don't grab a toy. You need to ask. Right. Well, telling a child to do that, you know, Obviously, okay, what does that mean? You know, and then the child has the process where you say like, oh, I see now that, you know, child A is upset because you took their toy. That it's just, it's teaching them to see it and not just don't do that. It's teaching them the why.
2: Right. Those cognitive strategies for the kid. Look, there are some kids who need, I would say, more scripts than others. But when you have a child who's available to the cognitive strategies, you know, getting them to actually think about, think things through. So for example, like a cognitive cue might be, you know, I wonder if Johnny wants a turn and then the child actually needs to think, huh, does Johnny need a turn? And then they have to organize and plan it, right? Okay. If Johnny wants a turn, um, then I need to ask them, okay, this is what I need to say. And then, you know, I need to be able also to respond To what Johnny says, so it might it might be multiple levels of of kind of cognitive um, strategies, right? Like a strategy, you know, cognitive prompt for asking, then maybe a cognitive prompt for, you know, oh, what was what was Johnny's answer? You know, getting them to think. Oh, did Johnny answer? Oh, let me check in and you know and see. Some kids, you know, again, it's kind of this kind of progression of skills. You know, some kids are ready for that. Other kids might need me to point out. Oh, you know, I didn't hear Johnny's answer. I'm wondering if he heard me. Let me ask him. Johnny, did you hear my question? Um, and I, I just think, you know, and again, I kind of also kind of bringing it back to the parents. When we do that, when I model for parents, I think it's just so empowering. I mean, that's my goal. Um, I want parents to feel empowered. I want them to feel like, you know, when they're on the playground with their child, they don't need me there. They know what to do or they have just, you know, and I always say to parents, like, look, you're not always going to have the answer. You are you might try ten to those strategies and none of them work. And like, remember, like you're human, your kids are human. Like sometimes you're just going to have a day. You're just going to have a minute. You're just going to have an hour. And in those moments, you might have to gently say to your child, Okay, I'm. I see you're really upset right now, and we're gonna leave. I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to carry you to the car. And that's it. You right. know, they're just it's they're having they're having you know a hard time, and you know, and they're communicating a message to us that that they just can't be in that setting anymore, and that's okay. Because um, I know, look, as I a parent,
3: I like that because it's done in a gentle way instead of that's, that's it. You don't know how to behave? We're leaving.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think like, look, I think kids need to know what's going to happen, especially the kids I work with. And you know what they might not hear if they're the the emotional side of their brain is flooded. they're, They're not, they might not hear us, but we at least need to try and let them know like, okay. Or like even like using a whisper voice. I always tell my parents, you know, it's like being, you know, if you're a teacher in a class of 30 kids and you know, everyone's noisy and then you'll see here are some teachers kind of like, start to get louder and louder i always tell teachers if you could just try to get quieter and quieter and quieter and dim the lights and just continue to talk like this the kids are going to say oh the teacher's trying to talk bad we can't hear her so we need to get quiet right same thing with our voice we can use our voice you know to actually calm the brain we know that so using like this whisper voice i mean it may sound really silly but we're actually helping to calm our children. And quite frankly, for some parents, and look, everybody's neurological system is different. For me as a parent, if I start to whisper, I get calmer. Yep. So it's actually a strategy, not just for the child, but also for the parent to calm themselves down. And again, I also feel like it's empowering. Um, you know, one thing we haven't had a chance to talk about yet is that I'm a parent of two neurodivergent um, teenage boys and um, I love my kids, and you know we we have been through years of of um, of lots of wonderful things and some challenges, and um, you know so my approach with families is probably quite different than than it would be um, otherwise.
3: Yeah, and it's I, I mean being a parent of a child you know that has yeah, nor diverse, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, it's such a huge difference. And I, I feel like for me, at least I can relate to the parents more and, and can be more empathetic and be like, I get it. I understand where you are. And like, let's, let's see where we are now and how can we get to the next stage and what do we need to do? Um, and the other thing I was thinking about is that, you know, and I think I did a post on this the other day is that when a child elevates, they really need us to come down. Yeah. Because if we go up, they're going to go up. Then we're going to oh and God. and then what happens? And no, you know, I know I don't feel good after that. So I'm sure my yeah. child doesn't. So it's kind of like, wait, let's bring it back down and model that we can be upset and frustrated and not scream and now.
2: And I think that is one of the hardest things as a parent. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, sometimes I say to parents, like, if you're in a situation that's safe for your child and you are having a hard time calming down, the best thing to do is model it, right? Like, I'm feeling really angry right now, so I need a break. Pa- you know, our children, we, we, we want our kids to self-advocate, which is, you know, a goal for most of the kids I work with is that self-advocacy goal. So let's advocate for ourselves in front of our children and let them know what is the appropriate thing to do in those moments. You're feeling really stressed. Instead of raising your voice, let them know you need a break. You know, it might not work for every situation. You might not be in a setting that's safe for your child and you can just walk away. Um, If you have a really young child, you might not just be able to walk away even in your home. But if you have an older child just saying, you know what? I am feeling really, really tense right now. I am going to set a timer for two minutes and I'm just going to go sit down and I'm going to put on my headphones and I'm going to listen to my music or whatever way helps you, you know, stay calm. For some, you know, for some parents, we are, we know that, for example, there might be a calming strategy that we want our kids to use and we know it's, it's been, you know, beneficial for them and it really works. So in those moments of frustration, you might use it to try to model that strategy that you want your child to to learn. Well, it might be a strategy of taking deep breaths. It might be a strategy of squeezing like their favorite stuffy. So you literally might get up and pick up a stuffy and say, Oh, I just really, I'm going to squeeze my stuffy and I'm just going to, going to just squeeze it so tight. And I'm going to set this timer and I'm just going to Keep squeezing my t- stuffy and modeling it like, like kind of that thinking aloud again. Like, oh, you know, oh, my timer went off, but you know what? I'm gonna check in with my body. I don't. My body does not feel calm. I think I need to set it for one more minute. Um, and you know, I just think that also when I, when we have those moments with our kids, you know, for many of the kids I work with, their their emotional side of their brain is is getting flooded. And they're not available to listening to language. And so, you know, it might just be sitting quietly for a few minutes and just taking deep breaths or whatever it is. You know, for some kids, obviously taking deep breaths can actually heighten their emotions. For others, it can can calm them. Um, But whatever it is that works for their child, you know, sitting quietly, waiting it out. You know, we know that kind of anxiety in these situations kind of like you know, go in waves, and we know that if we even just sit there and wait, eventually they will calm down. Um, and making sure again that we, you know, if we're just kind of sitting there quietly, that can be a calming strategy for us. And then once everyone's calm, then you can have the conversation. You know, um, name it to tame it, or whatever. You know, whatever, whatever strategy, whatever you know um strategy best practice strategy you want to use with your child um getting yourself calm first is is hard and, and and you know what i mean it's important but i also think like sometimes you it might not work and like validating that for parents and normalizing that like look last week when you got really upset and you just couldn't calm down like we've all been through that every parent goes through that like of course you of course it was hard Of course, it was hard because it is hard. And when your child is screaming at you or really dysregulated, it's really anxiety provoking for us as parents, especially when, you know, if you're in a public place or even if you're not, maybe it's just the two of you in your house. And like maybe, you know, your bucket got really full because you had a really challenging work day and you walked in the door and your child was screaming and you didn't have a chance um, to kind of, you know, empty your bucket and, you know, calm yourself down before you got into the house. So you just didn't have the bandwidth to manage it. I think, I think parents need to feel like it's safe to make mistakes, Yep. you know, and, and we have to let our kids know it's safe to make mistakes too.
3: Right. And that's right. And you say it's so true because one of the things I've been working on is like, look, Hey, I'm human also. I'm a hothead. I know it. I lose my temper way more than I'd like to. Um, But the other thing I do is I'll come back and be like, you know what? Mommy was wrong. Mommy got upset and I said no because of this reason. But you know what? Once I've thought it through, I think it's okay. Let's try a different way. And so it's showing the child that just because you make a big mistake doesn't mean it's the end of the world. doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's You made a mistake and now you're going to go back and, and fix it in a way that you can.
2: I think, and I think that kind of repair work also is really important. I, I think, having a parent come to a child, admitting a mistake, apologizing, really, really um, normalizes mistakes and lets kids know it's safe. Um, and you're also repairing repairing that moment. The repair is really important for the child. Um, you know, I, I think back to my graduate work, um, in New York and education. And I think about how, you know, I was taught that the teacher is not always like the teacher should not be on a pedestal. The teacher doesn't have all of the answers or all the information. Parents learn from their kids every day. I know I do. Um, you know, and it's funny, sometimes I'll have moments with my kids, you know, at the moment, you know, with my 16 year old, just cause he's a little bit older you know all have modeled a million different kind of thoughts of empathy and then in that in that moment when I'm not being empath- you know empathetic he'll call me on it you know like mom you know, <laughs> you know I'll, do that. and I'll say like yeah you're right I'm I'm learning from you I'm learning from you um you know the kids kids should not feel like their parents have all the answers because they don't I know I don't um exactly. And, and I also think, and again, it's, so it's not, it's about the kids, but it's also about letting parents know, like, it's okay. If you don't have all the answers, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to, to, you know, to make mistakes.
3: Yeah. And to ask for support that I've talked about that a few times is that, you know, the parents asking for help, like calling somebody like you calling, you know, an advocate, an attorney, you know, other people that can give support is teaching the child that your child doesn't have to do it all alone either. Yeah. You know, we as parents, we can't do it all alone. It takes, a, it takes a village and it's okay to need that village. Um, and I think it's great modeling for our kids. And I know, like we were talking about, like we've been talking about developmentally in different stages. Like this isn't something like it's, can you like teach the children? Like, okay, we're going to, you know, six months or a year and then we're good or is this like a long-term developmental thing that you need to work with the family?
2: It really depends. You know, I have families I work with um, sometimes just very briefly. I might go and then do, I might be referred um, by a school and I might, you know, lately, maybe the school has shared some concerns with the parents and I go and observe. This usually happens in the younger kids where I'll go in and observe Um, in the classroom and then I'll do a home visit and then I'll have a parent meeting where we'll talk about the observations. And sometimes it's me doing that kind of navigation with them because they need the support kind of figuring out what's the next step. Um, So for some kids, it's, you you know, for some families, I might be working with them for a short time of just like a month where I'm just helping them navigate kind of the next steps, maybe I'm just referring them to, you know, to an OT for an eval, and then they just need OT, you know, like that does happen. I wouldn't say it's, it's common, um, but it definitely happens. Um, And for others, it's kind of supporting them through, through the years, you know, sometimes it's, you know, working with a family when the child is in preschool, and then helping them transition to kindergarten, um, either at a, private school or a public school, helping them navigate that, helping them get an IFSP or an IEP or a 504 um, and, you know, working maybe more on the school side of things. Um, And then for others, it's kind of planting seeds for later. You know, I'm always trying to take the long-term approach and thinking ahead, okay, your child is, is this age now. In one or two years, they're going to be expected to do this. What are the things we need to work on now to kind of um, create that foundation so that they're ready for that next step? Um, You know, again, that planting seeds, I think, is really important. Um, I think even when a child isn't necessarily ready for something, we can start to plant seeds um, whether it's, you know, I'm working with one child, you know, using a social thinking strategy of, you know, expected and unexpected behavior, the child isn't ready yet. And again, yet, I think is the important word um, for some of the higher level skills, but making sure that we're planting the seeds with certain things now so that when they are ready, you know, maybe maybe they weren't showing kind of a lot of engagement with certain things at, you know, at, you know, or maybe they aren't showing certain engagement with certain things now, but I find that kids who don't look like they're listening are listening. You know, I'm sure you have a lot of, you know, you know, families you represent who have, you know, have kiddos who maybe they're not making eye contact, but I bet they're getting a lot of the information you're giving. So I think it's really, really important to plant the seeds while making sure that you're also not overwhelming them with whatever it is you're trying to communicate.
3: Yeah, that's so true. Um, so why, like, what should parents look for? Like, if, you know, they're saying they know something's quirky about their child or this or that, like, are there certain things that parents should look for to know, like, oh, wait a minute, I need to reach out to Naomi because we need
2: help. You know, it's a really good question. It's really hard to answer, frankly, because I think every child is so different. But I would say that, you know, the majority of kiddos who I see do struggle with that cognitive flexibility, the ability to shift from one thing to another. Um, If they're having, you know, especially with the younger kids, if they're not able to stick with something and if they're kind of kind of flitting from one activity to another, if they're, if every kind of little deal is a big deal, um, if they're having difficulty picking up on those social cues, um, joint attention is a big one at a young age when we, you know, when, for those listening who don't know what that means, it's, you know, when two or more people are, are focused on, you know, on an object or a person, um, or like, you know, that kind of shared enjoyment, um, you know, I think it's, it's tricky. I think that, you know, especially parents who just have one child and they don't necessarily have a typically developing child first, it can be really hard. And I think sometimes, you know, we can dismiss certain behaviors. Um, but I think that, you know, generally, you know, try to partner. I say to parents, try really try to partner with the schools when they come to you with a concern, um, Really listen. And when they, and I think one thing I've been struggling with and a lot of my colleagues have been struggling with is, you know, when they go to the pediatricians, you know, make sure you're a really good reporter because right. the pediatricians, you know, they're not obviously, you know, we want them to focus on the developmental piece, but keep in mind that they're, the pediatricians only seeing your child in office once every X amount of months. And so 20 minutes, right? And they're not talking to the school, and they're not talking to the soccer coach, and they're not, you know, they're not talking to all these people in your child's life, and they're not seeing with their own eyes your child in, in different settings. So, your child might do really, really well one on one. Your child might do really well with adults, right? right? If your child is doing really, really well with adults, but not necessarily engaging with peers. If they're going to the playground and they prefer to play that by themselves or they're getting really stuck on something like, oh, they and, and like something that might not be something that's kind of, you would expect them to get stuck on. Maybe it's like, you know, and again, th- this doesn't necessarily mean anything, but, you know, maybe they're getting stuck on doing something over and over and over again. Um, maybe they're getting stuck on drawing a picture over and over again, or, you know, they want to see you do something over and over again. Now, that's very typical, right? Like little kids right. like repetition. They like routine. Um, they like that kind of cause effect piece. Um, but, you know, I would say if your gut tells you that something is just a little off or you're kind of looking around, you're with another child and another child is interacting in a certain way and you say to yourself, you know, I don't see my child doing that. Or I don't see my child imitating me. I don't see, you know, or they're getting really upset, you know, when it's loud or they're getting really upset with certain, you know, in the bathtub and they don't want to have their hair washed, whatever it is. Again, it doesn't mean that we need to be super concerned about it, but talk to somebody, right? Talk to a specialist. Um, And again, you need to be a good reporter because what I find... Um, is that, you know, when we go to the pediatrician and we fill out the MCHAT, those questions are written by specialists, but parents are not specialists. So sometimes I think the questions are really ambiguous. And sometimes, you know, you think you're answering the question correctly, but when in fact you might not know exactly what you're looking for right. as a parent. And so I would just say when in doubt, you know, If you just feel like something's just not what you expect, you know, the worst thing that has happened is that you've wasted your time, but you haven't wasted your time. It's just you spent the time and you kind of feel better about it. But again, I think the reporting piece is really, really important. And also listening to the people in your child's life, like the teachers who do have that child development experience and understand typical development. Um... Being a listener and really acting on it and really being their partner is, is super, super important. Right.
3: No, and it's, it's, it's trust the parent gut. I say that all the time to, you know, to everybody in my network, you know, people that I come in touch with. It's there and we need to learn how to touch it, cut in because like, as you said, worst case scenario is you found out it's nothing and that's not a big deal. Best case scenario, like if there is something, it's better to start early rather than wait later like services early i always say that the earlier you start the better because it just gives your child more of a fighting chance of getting where they need to be to be as good as they can be
2: right i mean look 90% of the synaptic connections in a child's brain are you know have developed by the time they're 4 And so, and it doesn't mean, I mean, we know that the brain is very malleable through, you know, childhood and adulthood, but I do, I mean, I see such an enormous difference. And we know, like you said, research has shown that kids, the kids who have gotten intervention before the age of three are much less likely to need intervention later. I would rather see a child, you know, be in a more specialized um, setting, uh, educational setting at a younger age So that they can thrive and be independent in a regular education setting later. In my experience, depending on the child, right. I would say that most of the kids who, whose parents put them in the specialized setting when they really needed it, were better able to shift to a regular education setting later. Obviously not everybody, every, you know, every situation is different. Um, But I would say that's really a pattern that I see. Unfortunately, people who, you know, parents sometimes are really, really focused on being in a mainstream educational setting. And look, that is the goal, right? Sometimes, right, if it's appropriate, right, if it's appropriate. But that's the that's the key, right? As you said, if it's appropriate, and I, I, I just think like when we just take a step back, you know, think about what's really best for our child right now, and nothing's permanent. You know, I say, I tell parents, like, sometimes you're not like, they want answer. They want to know, like they want a crystal ball. If I put my child in the school, are they going to thrive? I don't know. Sometimes, like, there's no way to know. Sometimes you have to make the leap and actually put your child in the setting to know. But I will say, I always try to tell parents, like, nothing is permanent. You're the parent. You get to choose. If you make a choice, and you find after you have really given it time that it is not the best environment for your child, you are in charge. You get to make the choice to, to pull your child out, move your child, whatever it is. Obviously, you know sometimes financial resources get in the way, um, and you know kind of going back to the conversation we had earlier about you know my lens of of a of a. Parent um, of two neurodivergent kids, um, it is different, and so I try to really think about my experience as a parent, which is going to be diff- different from my my client's experience. But at the same time, I think many of us kind of share the same c- certain experiences in terms of you know, a lot of parents they they go. They they want support for their child and they know it's going to automatically be, you know, much more expensive than kind of just a support for a neurotypical child. It just, it just is. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I always just try to be really, really sensitive to kind of not just kind of emotionally what's going on, but also financially what's going on. You know, that has a huge impact mm-hmm. on, a, on a parent, you know, some, a lot of parents, most parents can't give their child every single, you know, intervention that they want to with the exact interventionist they want to, because it's simply just not within their budget and they don't have the resources for it. So I really do try to work with families. I never want finances to, you know, to prevent them, you know, from, from working with me. And If I, if I can't support them, then I will work very hard to make sure that I refer them to someone who can. Um, And that's not just, you know, financially, just in general. I mean, I I think it's so important for us as practitioners to have that integrity. I I never want, you know, a client to feel like, you know, I'm pushing them to do something because it's my, in my, you know, the favor of my business, um, that, that's just, that's not going to fly with me. Um, and, and, so, and I do this, I, you know,
3: I do the same thing. Like I offer strategy sessions and I tell parents, like sometimes I will tell you not to hire me although I can get a perfect IEP in place. Right. The resources are better spent going and hiring a dyslexic coach or going into hiring an executive functioning person. And like integrity is so important to make sure like we get it. We're parents. We have limited resources and let's use them wisely. So that we get our children what they need
2: yeah. and it's hard you know part of my job also is to help my families prioritize what the interventions are um, and sometimes it is like look right now I had someone call me recently right now you know it's sounds. I said to them it sounds like you have a really good team in place like yep. you know at some point maybe maybe it will work together and maybe not and that's okay You know, um, and it also has to be, this is a different topic, but it also has to be a good match, right? Right. Like I have to feel like I can help your child. And if, if your child doesn't feel connected to me for whatever the reason, that's okay. I'm going to refer them out. I've done it before. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but I do it because, or if I feel like, you know, I've utilized the skills that I have and I just feel like for whatever reason, um, the strategies I'm using, you know, I've, I'm, I've exhausted what I think is, is appropriate. And I just think we need a different lens. I'm going to send you elsewhere. It doesn't always, you know, people always don't want, always want to hear it. Right? right. You want to know that like, well, my child really likes working with you. Why can't, well, because I just, I think that they can be making more progress somewhere else. Right. Um, they need a different approach. They might need a mental health care provider and, you know, that's what they need. You know, I think staying in my lane is really important. I'm really, really transparent with parents when they call me about, you know, what it is I do and what it is I don't do. Um, I can support a lot of things like emotional modulation and self-regulation. But I also sometimes need to feel like I'm getting guidance from a mental health care practitioner. I think that's super, super important to have those really, you know, candid conversations with parents, especially in a time when... It's really hard to get in, um, in with, with good people in the mental health care field. Um, and there are long wait lists. And I know parents are just desperate to get their kid in, but if I feel like that's what they need, that's what they need. Um, so yeah, that, that transparency and the integrity to me is really important. So how do parents
3: get in touch with you? Like if they say, okay, my gut's telling me I need to call Naomi. What should they do? How should they contact you?
2: So they can either email me. Do you want me to say my email? Or are you going to? Well, a- we'll have it. It'll be in the show notes below. But okay. you can, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 email so they, phone. Can either, yeah. they can either email me um, or they can give me um, a call. I I generally get back to people within 24 hours, the latest 48 hours. Um, and then, you know, we, we sit down and I, you know, Some people are 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 limit like to to limit their kind of free consultations. I really try not to do that, um, you know, because I feel like that initial call is really really important. Um, It gives the parent an opportunity to get to know who I am and how I how my practice works, and also for me to get a feel for the um, child and family's strengths and challenges. To to think about: Am I the right person, or might they be better served with somebody else? So that initial phone call or that email is the best way to get in touch with me.
3: Perfect, awesome. This has been so wonderful, Naomi. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show, and I hope the listeners found it as valuable as I did. I love that's one of the things I love about the show is I always learn something new. So
2: thank really you for having me. And I just, for me, I love talking to other people in the field. I feel like, you know, all of us just want to do what's best for families and children. Um, and it's always really fun for me to talk to people like you. So thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to Stress-Free IEP with your host, Francis Schefter. Remember, you do not need to do it all alone. You can reach Francis through SchefterLaw.com, where prior episodes are also posted. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing the show with others through YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more.